the Holy Spirit. This is number seven in this series, and it is entitled, The Spirit's Invitation to the Celestial Wedding. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we invite thy Holy Spirit to open our hearts to this most important subject that we may become worthy to be found acceptable to live with thee in thy soon coming kingdom. And we ask this in the blessed name of Jesus. Amen. Let us now turn to the scriptures. I am reading from Revelation 19 verses 7 to 9. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come. His wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. As an introduction, let me take you back to the Garden of Eden, where God officiated at the first marriage. How did Adam get his bride? God caused Adam to sleep, and as he slept, God took a rib from his side, which he used to make woman. Charmed with her loveliness, Adam explained with words that meant, we are two of a kind. You'll notice this in Genesis 2.23, for he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And God pronounced them man and wife, saying, and I'm quoting Genesis 2.24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Herein is a very deep spiritual lesson. For Adam typified the second Adam, who was Christ. He left his father to seek a bride in this world. He also slept a very deep sleep, even the sleep of death. And through the twin streams of water and blood, which flowed from his side, he wins his bride. Thus we read in the Mount of Blessings, page 64, in both the Old and the New Testament, the marriage relation is employed to represent the tender and sacred union that exists between Christ and his people. 
How beautiful! Now, before we proceed further, we must consider a principle of interpretation that has led some to make a shipwreck of their faith. Because of the limitations of language, the Bible frequently employs symbols to help us to understand, such as the Old Testament writers who wrote of the Messiah, as we read in Isaiah 53, 2-7, it spoke of him as a root out of dry ground, and a man of sorrows, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And then we read, and brought as a lamb to the slaughter. What a picture of suffering is revealed to us of the Messiah who was to come. Yet, Isaiah also painted the coming Messiah in a vastly different picture. As we read in Isaiah 9:2 and 63, 1-6, here Christ is shown as one sitting upon the throne of David, glorious in his apparel, and treading down the wicked. Now because of this latter description, the Jews had difficulty in reconciling the Messiah's humiliation with the glory that he was said to attain. National pride wanted a prince to deliver them from Rome's galling yoke. But Jesus offered them a different kind of deliverance, a deliverance from sin. In rejecting the Savior, they rejected the Holy Spirit that attested to his ministry. That is why Isaiah said, in chapter 53, 1, who hath believed our report? Today as then. And I'm reading 1 Corinthians 2, 13 and 14. The Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And may I add, which are spiritually discerned now as then. And I'm reading on as I quote, A natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. Unquote. Again, <clears throat> let's look at some other seemingly contradictions. Isaiah speaks of the church as the vine. But Jesus said, I am the vine, John 15, verse 5. Christ represented himself in Jeremiah 3:14 as married to his people. But in Revelation 21, 9 to 10, it speaks of him as married to the new Jerusalem. Like the early disciples, we need light about the wedding. There are two parables that provide the clarification that we need. The parable of the wedding garment 
found in Matthew 22, 2-13, shows that a person's welcome to the wedding depended upon his wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. But in Matthew 25, 1-13, the parable of the ten virgins, we find that it teaches that attendance at the wedding depended upon the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life. Both parables emphasize that the redeemed attend Christ's wedding and not their own. As we dig deeper, we find in Matthew chapter 22 that the king made a wedding celebration for his son, and the king provided a wedding garment for all the guests. These garments symbolize Christ's character, as we read in Christ Object Lessons, page 310. But we must remember that the wedding garment never hides unconfessed or unforsaken sin. In Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 366, we read, No man can cover his soul with the garments of Christ's righteousness while practicing known sin or neglecting known duties. In order for man to retain justification, there must be continual obedience, unquote. This absolute truth is in direct opposition to the present false teachings of the new theology. And now, follow me closely. Before Adam and Eve sinned, God clothed them with the white of innocence, as we read in Christ Object Lessons, page 310. And this is further explained in the story of Redemption 21, quote, as a covering of light and glory, such as the angels wear, unquote. Now, you may have never thought of its meaning, for this robe of light signified that they still faced a test of obedience, for the Bible never equates innocence with righteousness. Let me repeat that. The Bible never equates innocence with righteousness. Now, what do I mean? Let me illustrate. A young lady in her innocence is pure as the new fallen snow. But when she is tempted to break her virginity before marriage, she cries, no, never. Now she has something more than innocence, for innocence tested has become virtue. So in the spiritual sense, this can also be said of righteousness. By the king's examination of the guests, 
as we read in Christ Object Lessons, page 310, quote, it represents a work of judgment, unquote. The king sees a man who has presented himself in his citizen's garb. He now stands speechless as God asks, why did you ignore wearing the special robe that I had prepared for you? Never forget, God always has the last word. When does the wedding between Christ and his bride take place? Let me turn to Ellen White and let us find our answer. In Early Writings, page 251. I saw that while Jesus was in the most holy place, he would be married to the new Jerusalem. Then she explains this further in Early Writings, page 280. While Jesus had been ministering in the sanctuary, the subjects of the kingdom were made up, and the marriage of the Lamb was consummated." Unquote. According to the parable of the ten virgins, there were only five with oil who had made the needed preparation. <clears throat> How is this? For in the book, Sons and Daughters, page 18, we read, all the virgins had lamps, that is, an outward semblance of religion, but only five of them had inward piety. Five of them were wanting in the oil of grace, the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was not abiding in their hearts." Unquote. That's an eye-opener, isn't it? In speaking of Adventist believers, Ellen White stated in Early Writings, page 255, it was represented to me that the remnant followed Jesus into the most holy, and they by faith entered the most holy, they found Jesus. Now isn't that amazing? Immediately you can see how important it is to study the sanctuary teaching. In Christ Object Lessons, page 408, I quote, the five foolish virgins represent all those who refuse this light and are destitute of the Holy Spirit. Oh, how few of God's remnant today realize the importance of the sanctuary teaching as given to our people. In this parable, the foolish virgins arrive at the wedding only to find the door is shut. From these parables, we learn that attendance at the wedding depended upon two points. First, 
wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness, and second, having the Holy Spirit abiding within them, controlling the entire life. Now this brings us to a big question. What does the symbolism of this message have as a spiritual lesson for us today? In the Great Controversy, page 426, I read, The marriage represents the reception of Christ, of his kingdom. And in the book of Revelation, John in vision heard a voice saying, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Revelation 21, 9, 10, and 2. And then again in the book Great Controversy, page 426, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, which is the capital, and please notice, the representative of the kingdom called the bride, the lamb's wife. Clearly then, the bride represents the holy city. In the Revelation, the people of God are said to be the guests at the marriage supper. If guests, they cannot be represented also as the bride, unquote. Now, how do we harmonize these statements? In the Great Controversy, page 426, we read of the guests, they were not to be present in person at the marriage. Why? For it takes place in heaven while they are upon the earth. The followers of Christ are to wait for the Lord when he will return from the wedding. But they are to understand his work and to follow him by faith as he goes in before God. It is in this sense that they are said to go into the marriage. Now, it has become very clear that we become the bride by first becoming the guests. The phrase not present in person and to follow him by faith help us to grasp the significance of this celestial wedding as it relates to each of us. Like Moses, we must follow Jesus by faith, seeing him who is invisible, Hebrews eleven twenty seven. Ever since the disappointment of 1844, the wise virgins with oil in their lamps have entered by faith into heaven's most holy place to attend the marriage of the Lamb. And so today, everyone who is led by the Holy Spirit enters the most holy place 
by faith. This is how God counts us as being present today. The Great Controversy, page 2427, we read, All who, through the testimony of the Scriptures, accept the same truths, follow Christ by faith as he enters in before God to perform the last work of mediation and at its close to receive his kingdom. All these are represented as going in to the marriage, unquote. Now let's do some more serious thinking. Have we entered the most holy place by faith? Does the knowledge of knowing what takes place in heaven's sanctuary stir a deep devotion within your heart to be ready for his soon coming? Why do I ask these questions? Because back in 1890, many of the professed believers were unprepared. I'm reading of their condition in the Review and Herald, February 25, 1890. The people have not entered into the most holy place where Jesus has gone to make an atonement for his children, unquote. And that was a startling pronouncement for those living back then. This is why I ask you today, have we changed for the better? Do we as church members today live as wise virgins, keeping our lamps trimmed and burning with the oil of the Holy Spirit? As you ponder this question, listen to this, Review and Herald, August 19, 1890. I have often referred to the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were wise and five foolish. The parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter, for it has a special application to this time. And like the third angel's message, has been fulfilled and will continue to be present truth till the close of time, unquote. So individually, will you ask yourself, has the subject of Christ's righteousness become my daily object to be obtained in life so that my neighbors are able to see a living Christ enthroned in all that I do? Why do I continually press this point? Because we have been told in Selected Messages 1, page 360, not one in 100 understands for himself the Bible truth on this subject. And that's alarming. 
This is why Satan is determined to keep God's people from obtaining a clear presentation of Christ's work for us in the heavenly sanctuary. Quote, For he knows that if the people receive it fully, his power will be broken. Unquote. Review and Herald, September 3, 1889. What does this term, righteousness by faith, actually mean? If you will search the spirit of prophecy with me, you will find some 40 definitions, all true. Let me give you some sample statements. In Christ Object Lessons, page 312, righteousness is right doing. In the book, The Mount of Blessings, page 18, righteousness is holiness. Righteousness is love. The righteousness of God is embodied in Christ. And we receive righteousness by receiving him. In the Desire of Ages, page 310, the righteousness which Christ taught is conformity of heart and life to the revealed will of God. Now, although this doctrine may seem simple to understand, we will never attain to the righteousness of Christ if we are not daily filled with the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. In Selected Messages 1, page 374, we are told, in order that we may have the righteousness of Christ, we need daily to be transformed by the influence of the Spirit. Lest I have failed to impress this point, I repeat, righteousness without the Holy Spirit does not exist because righteousness denotes the presiding presence of God's Holy Spirit in the daily life. For it's the Spirit that stimulates faith and provides the power that enables the believer to live Christ's life. Steps to Christ, page 63, says, Our only ground of hope is in the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And how is this done? in that wrought by his Spirit, working in and through us. Christ's righteousness provides both an instant and a continual experience. Let me illustrate. Napoleon's white charger got away from him while he was in a battle. A private rushed out and caught the horse by the bridle, and led him to the general. Pleased, the general said, Thank you, Captain. 
The private saluted. What regiment, sir? The private had accepted as a fact what Napoleon had intended as a thank you. Napoleon couldn't go back on his word, so he gave the private a captaincy. God wants us to take him at his word, but God makes no idle promises. Don't be amazed. I'm quoting Steps to Christ, page 51. If you believe the promise, God supplies the fact. It is so if you believe it. Now, isn't that wonderful? The astounding truth is that at the moment a sinner becomes a believer, he stands before God as though he had never sinned. What a glorious truth. Praise his name. But don't forget, the believer always accepts God's conditions demanding obedience. Made possible by the help of the Holy Spirit. And the believer receives even more, more than forgiveness. God places to his account the perfect righteousness of Christ. God credits him with always having done the right thing in the right way, just as Jesus did. Oh, what a God of love! It sounds unbelievable, but it's true. How can God make such possible? Because through the agency of the Holy Spirit, we become new creatures. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Made in the righteousness of God in him. You see, God holds nothing back. The Bible tells us of God's righteousness in Psalms 119.142. It says, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Selected Messages 1, page 394, tells us, Ellen White observes, quote, The provision made is complete and the eternal righteousness of Christ is placed to the account of every believing soul. Did you get that? The eternal righteousness. God offers nothing less. Let me state it in these words. God could not have offered more. Let me enlarge upon this wonder just a little further. The term righteousness by faith in Christ includes both imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. For the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, provides both. Let me read it, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. Ye are sanctified... Ye are justified 
in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. We must understand that it is the Holy Spirit that gives us a fitness for heaven. Desire of Ages, page 671. It is the Spirit of Truth working through the Word of God that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. Christ has given his Spirit as a divine power to overcome all hereditary and cultivated tendencies to evil. Don't you just feel like saying, praise God? How wonderful. And this is not difficult to understand as you read in Christ Object Lessons, page 312. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged in his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed with the garment of his righteousness. Now, you can see this is the same as I mentioned when we began this study. When God united Adam and Eve in marriage, Genesis 3.24, for he said, they shall be one flesh. So now we can understand the statement that righteousness by faith is the third angel's message in verity. Evangelism, page 190. Because it represents the uplifted Savior, as you read in Testimonies to Ministers 91. This is the message that God commanded to be given to the world. It is the third angel's message, which is to be proclaimed with a loud voice and attended with the outpouring of his Spirit in a large measure. This is why Keep the Faith end time messages always stress the need for the Holy Spirit today. In the book Sons and Daughters of God, page 368, only those who are clothed in the garments of his righteousness will be able to endure his presence when he shall appear with power and great glory. Christ's Object Lessons, page 97. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right. Thus, we shall be imbued with the latter rain's power. The Adventist message is to throb with such divine energy that it will go to the world. Gospel Workers, page 27. Everyone is to bear the last call to
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. From town to town, from city to city, from country to country, the message of present truth is to be proclaimed not with outward display, but in the power of the Spirit. But please, let me make it clear. No amount of preparation you make will avail you of a place at the marriage supper unless you personally know the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. For I read in Christ Object Lessons, page 413, the fellowship of the Spirit can alone make you one with a joyous throng at the marriage. This heaven-sent light that we have been studying on this message and of the sealing and of the shut door and of the wedding call demands our wholehearted response for this is our present truth. To look for more or greater light while neglecting these truths will result in spiritual darkness. More light would only produce a blinding glare. The Apostle Paul describes such persons as you read in 2 Timothy 3.7, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. In John 12.38, Jesus pleads, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. Some today imagine that the church needs more research, a new clarification of her doctrines. In other words, more new light. But what is needed now is to act upon the light already given. Never forget, and I'm reading Testimonies to Ministers 240, the Lord does not propose to perform for us either the willing or the doing. In letter 135, 1898, unless the human agent inclines his heart to do God's will and takes up God's service, the light will shine in vain. And listen to this. A thousandfold more light and conviction would accomplish nothing. For God knows he has sufficient evidence already. Let us pray. Oh dear God, help us to shut out from our ears the glamorous call for more new light today, but rather fill us now with the mighty power of the third person of the Godhead that we may receive 
thy robe of righteousness. Amen. Like the woman at the well I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my Lord, I lift it up, Lord, come and quench this thirsting of my soul, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no the things this world gave you leave hungers that won't pass away my blessed Lord will come and save you if you it up, Lord, come and quench this thirsting of my soul, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more, fill my cup.